This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. The field of paleoanthropology is going through such a fantastically exciting time right now because of new fossil discoveries, new breakthroughs in ancient genomics, but also because of a new approach to doing science with indigenous peoples and with the general public. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, John Hawks talks about some of the amazing work being done in paleoanthropology. The discovery of a new hominin species, Homo naledi, in South Africa. The finding that most human populations outside of Africa have Neanderthal ancestors. And why we need to rethink science's relationship with indigenous peoples as well as the general public. Cox is the Vilas Borghese Achievement Professor of Anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is also the co-author of Almost Human, The Astonishing Tale of Homo Naledi and the Discovery That Changed Our Human Story. John Hawks, thanks so much for talking with me today. Absolutely. Great to be here. So you recently wrote that the last 10 years have been an incredible period of time for paleoanthropology, specifically because of the rise of genetic sampling of ancient human remains. I was wondering if you could tell us some concrete ways in which the genetic story of ancient human beings and their travels have changed in the last decade. Sure. Um, If we look at the world in 2008, 
You know, no substantial genome sequence from any archaic human had ever been recovered. Um, there was the first pushes of sequencing DNA from Neanderthals, which began in 1997. Um, but, but that was initially just a small part of the mitochondrial DNA. And it gave you a very small bit of information. And that's that Neanderthals had a mitochondrial lineage that was divergent from ours and that no living people shared it. Um, if you looked at the world in 2008, people really had taken that fact and assumed, hey, Neanderthals really are extinct. They're gone. Modern humans all derive our ancestry from some very small African group that lived something like 200,000 years ago. And, and that's the story of our evolution. There were once upon a time these archaic humans that lived in different parts of the old world, but all of them became extinct. And one African form spread and displaced everyone. Mm -hmm. When people looked at Africa, they assumed that this was basically a uniform population that had gone through some sort of extreme event, a bottleneck. People speculated, maybe this is because of a volcanic eruption. Maybe this is because of mega droughts that caused the population to crash. Maybe there were periods when parts of Africa were abandoned by hominids, right? Uh -huh. That was 2008. Yeah. <laughs> what has happened since then is the recovery of whole genome evidence from Neanderthals, which showed that, yeah, Neanderthals were mostly gone but contributed a small amount to living people that most living people have Neanderthal ancestors and, and people who live outside of Africa and have a history there have about 2 or 3% of their genetics from Neanderthals, that there was a group that no one knew existed called what we now call the Denisovans because of this genome from Denisova Cave mm -hmm. um, that were just as diverse and divergent from us as the Neanderthals. But archaeologists had no dream that there was a totally different population there somewhere in Asia. And that population contributed to living people. We now know from sequencing living people in Africa much more broadly and by comparing those signatures to archaic humans that Africans have ghost lineages that contribute to their ancestry. Huh. That there were archaic humans that were highly divergent from each other in Africa 100,000, 200,000 years ago. And they contributed something to living African peoples. And, of course, there are all the fossil discoveries that add to that, that add complexity to this picture. So, yeah, when we look at the world today, we're talking science fiction compared to what was thought to be known in 2008. Wow. So uh, I know that you mentioned at the beginning that the early genetic testing that was possible uh, focused on mitochondrial DNA. And not to get too technical, but as I understand it, you know, mitochondrial DNA allows you to look at maternal lines of descent. Is that That's correct? right. It's a really cool genetic locus because it's inherited separately from the nuclear DNA, the chromosomes, and it's only inherited from the mother and it mutates fast. And that's really convenient if your genetic technology is 1990s era genetic technology yeah. <laughs> because you can get variation without sequencing very much and you can tell whether lineages are related to each other very clearly because it doesn't recombine. Mm -hmm. um, but that also has a downside, right? One of them is that you're only tracing that one lineage, the maternal lineage. Um, another is that because it's only inherited from the mother, 
And because everybody only has one copy of it, it's actually really, really tiny in its variation compared to autosomal DNA. And so it tells us more about recent events and recent population growth and much less about more ancient events. And that's a real downside when you're looking at ancient populations like archaic humans. I was wondering if it made it seem more likely, if you just have mitochondria, that one population of humans wipes out another. Because essentially, if you, all you can study is, you know, what's the line of matrilineal descent, you can't see if there's other kinds of interbreeding, you know, between members of these different communities. Is that true? It's sort of true. When we look at recent cases of population contacts, population mixture, conquests by one culture over another, we look at those and we see that in some cases, the mitochondrial DNA of a previous population is overrepresented. You know, women are being more incorporated into this population than men. Um, in, in other situations, the mitochondrial DNA is much less represented than, than you might expect. So there are sex-biased uh, things that go on with migration and with, and with human interactions that mitochondrial DNA is picking up on. Also, it's really limited in what we call the effective population size. So if there's going to be a small fraction of survival of genetics, the mitochondrial DNA is much more likely to be wiped out than autosomal genes uh, because the autosomal genes are there in more copy numbers and you can inherit, inherit them from both parents. Um, and both of those factors combine to give it a bit of a bias. And in the 90s and early 2000s, we knew what the bias was. You know, you can read papers that say, well, we can exclude that Neanderthals made up more than 10% of the later modern human population. Those papers were entirely right. You know, we didn't get the math wrong. Uh -huh. it's, it's just that the evidence of that small amount of mixture hadn't been found. Right. So I want to ask you about another big uh, project that you've been working on, which is the discovery of Homo naledi remains in the Rising Star cave complex in South Africa. I know you've been very involved in this. I was wondering if you could talk about it. And in particular, I guess what I'm interested in is you said the period of time from about 250,000 to 350,000 years ago is a crucial time in human evolution. So I was wondering if you could dig at that a little bit. Yeah. What we're learning the, the Homo naledi discovery, to give it in a nutshell, 2013 in South Africa, Lee Berger, who's a friend of mine, National Geographic Explorer, was working with cave explorers to try to identify new places where there might be bones in caves in South Africa. Steve Tucker and Rick Hunter were two of those explorers. They went into a previously unmapped chamber in the Rising Star Cave. They found bones. Lee organized an expedition. I was one of the leaders of it in 2013. Our team underground recovered more than 1,500 specimens of what we quickly saw was an undiscovered hominin species. Wow. Um, and we called that species Homo naledi. This discovery, we would later learn, was actually a super surprising one in the overall context of human evolution. Naledi is a very primitive species. It has a small brain, about a third the size of ours. Its anatomy looks very much like Homo habilis or some very early form of Homo. Uh -huh. It has a mixture of traits. There are some derived traits and there are some very much more primitive traits in Naledi. And so when we look at the overall picture, most people thought, well, this is going to be something that's 2 million years old and mark the beginnings of our genus. 
we learned that the fossils are only 250,000 years old, more or less. They're between 236 and 335,000. And so this species, which was really, really anatomically primitive that looked like it shouldn't be coexisting with larger brained forms of humans, actually was there at the time that modern humans were originating. Wow. And that's one piece of this big puzzle, right? And when I say puzzle, you've got to imagine, we're looking at the continent of Africa, which is the largest landmass that was habitable across most of its expanse by early humans. You know, Asia is bigger, but much of Asia was uninhabitable by humans before modern humans arrived with advanced technology to live in the Arctic. So, so when you're looking at Africa, you're looking at this huge landmass, and we have explored only small parts of it for fossil hominids, mm -hmm. only in the Afar Triangle of, of Ethiopia, in southern Ethiopia, in some caves in the northern coast of Africa, along the Mediterranean, in Morocco, in uh, the Rift Valley of East Africa, and in caves in South Africa, including the South African coastal caves. That's sort of it. And when you're looking at a huge continent, there's stuff out there that we did not expect would be there, and Naledi is one of them. So are you able to actually sequence uh, ancient DNA from Homo Naledi, or is it too old? It is in the time range where it's possible. The oldest modern human, or excuse me, the oldest hominin DNA that's ever been sequenced is about 450,000 years old. Naledi is between 236 and 335. And so it's in the time range where it should be possible. However, it is in a very warm cave in South Africa. It's about 19 uh -huh. degrees Celsius year round. And the other sites where very ancient DNA has been sequenced are all very cold places. They're places where the temperature is much, much less. And so the preservation in the Rising Star Cave is not great biologically. We have attempted to extract DNA from the fossils, and we haven't had any success with that with today's techniques. And so now we're waiting for technology to advance, and I expect it will. You know, I think that we're going to get biological sequence information from this stuff. But it's going to take a special combination of new technologies and and the exceptional fossil that has the best preservation in the site. And it's going to take us a while to, to have that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It seems like so much of the kind of wow discoveries of the last 10 years are tied up with genetic sequencing. And yet I know this is only one branch of paleoarchaeology, right? I mean, there's fossil people too. And, and uh, so I was wondering if there is tension. Well, first of all, I guess, could you characterize who are the paleoarchaeologists? Are there some geneticists and other people who do strictly fossil work? Is there a overlap between these two groups? And is there tension between these groups uh, in terms of how they interpret, uh, you know, f bones versus DNA? 
I'll tell you what, if you followed this field for a while, you know, I entered this field in the 90s, and when I was a high school student in the 80s, you'd read about mitochondrial Eve and what we were learning from genetics about human origins, and, and it was portrayed as a big conflict. The geneticists were saying something revolutionary, and the fossil people didn't believe it, and there was an argument between them, et cetera, et cetera. And that atmosphere was what I was trained in. You know, when I was a graduate student, genetics was giving rise to different forms of observation than you could make from fossils. It was a challenge to try to integrate what you were finding from genetics with fossils. And, and the basic conflict was expressed by Rebecca Kahn back in the 80s. She said, you know, what I know about my genes is that they definitely had ancestors. Mm -hmm. And you can't say that about your fossils. You don't know if they had descendants. And that's real, right? The fact is that fossils and genetics are sampling two different forms of evidence. Today's genetics adds a substantial amount of information that was never possible in the 80s and 90s, because today we're talking about Neanderthal immune systems and Neanderthal digestion and the Denisovan high altitude adaptations. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, we're talking about aspects of biology that could never be seen in fossils. And that's very exciting, right? And what it's caused um, is, is a diversification of what people do. Uh -huh. You look at a team like our team in the field in South Africa. We're working with excavators who have incredible experience underground, who can work in very challenging situations to recover the Naledi bones out of the Rising Star Cave. We're working with anatomists who do not go in the field, who are specialists on different areas of the anatomy. They specialize on the foot, the hand, the skull, the teeth, and they study those things compared with every other fossil in the world and give mm -hmm. us an assessment of where Naledi fits. We're working with people who are specialists in phylogenetic analysis to try to put together the big picture of where Naledi fits in our family tree. We're working with geologists who are working on the flowstone layers to figure out what the ages of deposition of Naledi are. And we're working with chemists and geneticists who are trying to uncover biological information from the fossils. What you see is this incredible team of scientists. We've got more than 150 people involved and everybody's got their specialty and it all has to fit together into one big picture somehow. Yeah. And, and that I think is the model for what paleoanthropology is today. I think that there still are areas of suspicion and, and competition. You know, people have deep feelings about whether their fossils belong to one lineage or another. But the fact is, when you're looking at three billion base pairs of a genome, it's pretty hard to argue against <laughs> you know, against what they tell you. Yeah. And and what we become is a much less argument-driven, debate-driven science, and a much more data-driven science. And that's really yeah. exciting. Well, the reason I ask that question is, you know, I'm a historian of science, so uh, we we look for the points of conflict and uh, debate in the oh, past because yeah. they're really they're really interesting. And some of your writing, where you talk about this cultural, I would say, friction between the fo fossil approach and genetic approach, it reminds me a little bit about a book that uh, Roger Lewin wrote. 
I think it's called Bones of Contention. Bones of Contention. It's absolutely it's a classic, right? Not a classic because, you know, it's it because it expresses a time in history and it's real. It has real stories in it and people were nasty to each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I what I loved about the book was that he described this period. I think it was in the late 60s. You can correct me if I'm wrong there where people are just beginning to figure out uh, radiocarbon dating. And they're kind of coming into uh, conflict with the strata people who are uh, dating fossils according to different measures. And his point in that is that, you know, you'd think they'd figure out a way to kind of see uh, the same picture, but it took a while. I mean, there was a lot of cultural issues that separated those groups. And I was just wondering if something like that exists today. You know, when you look at what's going on with paleogenetics, and especially right when we talk about the ancient archaic human fossil record and and the genetic record of Neanderthals and that sort of thing, I think that these are, are sort of, you know, people are pursuing separate interests and people like me are trying to fit them together. But when you mm -hmm. go a bit closer to the present, you have paleogenomics folks who are trying to work out population histories of modern human populations. Where did today's population of Europe come from? What was what explains the spread of Indo-European languages? Um, what explains the origin of peoples of the New World, of the Americas? Um, how many migrations were there into the Americas, right? Those are big questions too. And they involve modern humans and their movements and population dynamics. And what you see is geneticists who are coming in with incredible technology to uncover connections between genomes, genomes of ancient people, genomes of living people, but who are not trained in anthropology, who don't have contacts with indigenous peoples whose DNA they're, they're using in their comparisons. And those, those aspects do create a lot of friction because uh -huh. we're in an area of science now. I could say as much as my friends and I cared about Neanderthals in the 1990s, we did not have living Neanderthal descendants who were who were you know deeply concerned about their origin stories and where they came from and were feeling oppressed by science, right? When you're talking about the origin of living peoples and and the differentiation of different cultural groups in historic time, you are talking about people's origin stories. You're talking about people's identities. And, and that is a huge source of conflict because anthropologists, archaeologists have been navigating these issues for 100 years, 150 years. And we've gone through a history yeah. that we didn't do very well, where you had grave sites of Native American peoples exposed and left open for tourism, where you had people's skulls and skeletons confiscated and brought to museums in other countries for display, right? And, mm -hmm. and that sort of history is endemic to anthropology, archaeology. It's something that we deal with the legacy of today. A responsible anthropologist has to know what to do with human remains and how to contact people who might be connected to them and what the federal and, and international regulations are related to, you know, repatriation. Yeah. Um, and these are all things that geneticists are not experienced in and are coming into without the kind of depth of history and training. And that's caused yeah. a lot of friction. Yeah, you um, recently wrote, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, you had a piece 
and you talked about both the exuberance and enthusiasm of uh, of genetics as it's applied to ancient humans, but also maybe a bit of the naivete that that comes with uh, this new culture moving into work that, as you put it, archaeologists and anthropologists have been trying to figure out for the last hundred years. So my question is this. You clearly are somebody who cares a lot about the genetic component of this work, uh, even though we know that a lot of Native peoples have been treated pretty poorly uh, by anthropologists in the past. What, what do you see as the way forward there? I mean, what's the, what's the way to resolve that dilemma? You know, you know, I work in South Africa. And in South Africa, there is this really, really deep and troubling history of race and how people have interacted and how people have, um, have subjugated you know, different cultures, different racial groups in that country. And when we work there, and our project is South African-led, right? And, and we have South African mm-hmm. scientists and, and explorers and people who work on the project at every level in South Africa. When I look at that project and I say, what is it about this that works? What is, what is it that you have to do today to be a responsible scientist working in areas that have this history? First, you have to interact with the public and with every group within the public to the greatest extent that you can, right? Those communication systems have to be open and they have to be two-way communication, right? You need to be listening to people. You, you know, I would ask many geneticists who, who are my friends and colleagues, right? Why do you care so much about the origins of this group that you're not a member of? You know, what are you getting mm-hmm. from that? Are you getting a scientific paper from it and is that benefiting your career you know are you satisfying some deep curiosity that you might have had in the past is this a project that somebody assigned to you because nobody had done this group before right look at your motivations and think how can i actually bring people into the study of their own history and you have to meet people where they are i mean the fact is that what you care about as a scientist and what you know and what you're connected to in the realm of scientific knowledge may actually have very little connection with ordinary people in the world, right? And we all know this. <laughs> we know that yeah. a lot of things that scientists do are hard to translate to the public. But in the areas of human history and human interactions and human past, you have to bring that in. You need people to be engaged in the research that you're doing, because if they're not, then you're doing it wrong. Right. You're not doing the best science that you can do. For us working in South Africa, doing the best science we can means engaging the public at every level. It means creating jobs for local people in the areas where we work. When we're protecting sites, we're creating employment at sites. It means working with World Heritage Authorities to make sure that what we're doing is sustainable, that it can be sustained into the future as a means of transmitting information about the past to people of South Africa and the world as we go forward. So I was wondering, um, uh, just at a very practical level, I mean, you're, you're able to talk about so many different aspects of this kind of work. But I was wondering, where do you primarily spend your time? Is it you know, is it like sequencing DNA in the lab or are you uh, out, uh, you know, digging through rocks in the uh, rising uh, star cave system or are you doing public outreach? I mean, what what are the components of what you do? 
You know, it's a balance of everything. Before I really got involved with Rising Star, most of my work was in informatics. And, and my work was in a laboratory working on sequence data that other labs had generated. We certainly did a lot of analytical work on human fossil remains in that period, too. We got a lot of publications on fossils and applying techniques to understand their biology. But, but a lot of what we did was informatic. We still do informatic work here in Madison, but I now spend uh, three or four months a year in South Africa where we're engaged in the field. Um, I'm a part of the project led by Lee Berger. We are you know, working on every level of the project. And uh -huh. a lot of that work is public engagement work. You know, in an ordinary day, I'm very likely to be giving a talk, doing school appearances, um, writing for the public, doing podcasts like this one, this is probably 25 or 30% of my work is engaging the public in one way or another. You know, there's such a, I don't want to say a debate, but there's there's so much discussion on Twitter about SciComm and its function and the respect that people get or sometimes don't get doing science communication. And what I hear you saying is that this isn't just about the dissemination of information. This is about, you know, bringing people in to this kind of work because they're they're a part of it. Is that am I hearing that correctly? That's exactly right. You know, I think one of the big mistakes that people make with science communication is thinking that this is about scientists doing charity work to tell the public what we're doing. And if we do some sort of, you know, charity and let people know what we're doing, the people will be very impressed and want to support us with more government funding. Yeah. Right? That is absolutely the wrong attitude to have. What you need to do for effective public engagement with science is to give the public greater control of what you're doing. Right? Real engagement is two-way. It's, it means when you have a community meeting with leaders of a group that you're interested in doing the genetics of, and they say, we don't want you to do this kind of work, but we're willing to cooperate in this other kind of work, you listen to that. And, and you shape your hypothesis generation and you shape your science based on what can be done. Because what can be done in this sense is an ethical obligation. It means actually pursuing the scientific subjects that the public is interested in. You know, we're exploring and we're finding new things. And I think that's amazing. And let me tell you, there was no funding 15 years ago for blue sky exploration, finding new fossil sites in paleoanthropology. The funding for this was near wow. zero. People argued that we had come to the end of the new fossil fields, that the fossil fields that they knew of were becoming exhausted because people had walked the surface and were collecting every bone that eroded out of them, and there was probably nothing left to find. And finding new things is a very good argument for funding the finding of new yeah, things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you. But, but the fact is, unless you're bringing the public in to say, what are the questions that matter to people? Why are we doing this? What is it about understanding human history, the human past, that matters, that can bring people into science and can make a difference in the world, right? If you're not bringing people in to help you identify those problems, you're going to be doing your science in a vacuum. And if there's one thing in this country that we can see right now, it's the effect of the bubble, yeah. the fact that you're working in only talking to people that do the same thing that you're doing, only getting a limited range of perspectives, we've got to break out of that bubble. And the way to do it is not by only by going out in the world like missionaries to tell people about the benefits of science. 
It's to bring people into the halls of science to let them tell us what matters. Yeah. Well, uh, John Hawks, this has been really great. I really appreciate you talking with me today. Absolutely. It's great to be here and, and great to have you engaged in these topics. I hope that, uh, you know, I hope everybody will keep following what we're doing and we'll keep following the progress in, in understanding human evolution because it's a really exciting, rapid field right now. That's it for today. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website and Twitter page for links and other exploration-related stuff. The Twitter page also has a link to Zabrat, the Canadian band that composed the music you're hearing now. And please take the time to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It does help make the show visible to new listeners. If you want to recommend a guest or just make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. that's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.